Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Happy February, you two. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy pre-Valentine's Day. Happy Black History Month. What, what, what else does February bring to us? I got the one, two, with the whammy of uh, my wife's birthday is uh, two days before Valentine's Day. So every year it's like a, it's just, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to show <laughs> her how much we love wonderful. her. Like, to okay. show your affection. <laughs> what, what a blessing to you. <laughs> <laughs> I will say in, in church world, February sort of feels like the beginning of the year because you do Christmas and then you get back and you're exhausted and then you got to get ready for the annual meeting, which most churches have their annual meeting in January and that's another big like stressor and you're doing budgets and all that sort of stuff. And they take a bit of a breather after that and then February is like, okay, now maybe we can get going with like, you know, ministry mm. rather than all this, you know, fatigue and preparation, so... Do you feel that at all in your household, Sarah? Oh, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. it's like, it feels like, it's weird, but it feels like things will slow down a little bit in Lent. Like, we're just, it's like big, like, um... Like we do that that blessings in a backpack program we do that feeds all those kids. Like oh yeah, we do like a bowling fundraiser for that, which is nice. so much fun and yes. mm-hmm. it was like a packed house and they raised so much money. Um, and then we hosted a thing at the house the next night for the vestry, and then we have a gala for the church and the school this Friday. Wow! It's just and then and then Dawson's in council, and then and then Ash Wednesday. I mean, it's just like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. yeah, but it's but it's really um, I think you know it's really good stuff. But it's like that time of year where you're like uh, have to kind of have your game face on, and by that I mean like not drink too much alcohol and get up in the morning and try to have a moment of quiet before your children bother you. So mm. yes, that's what my yeah. game face looks like. <laughs> I gotta say, following up on last time, I'm having a bit of a dry February, and I'm mm. enjoying it. I think I've dropped like five pounds already, but that's it's also because I don't eat. So, you know. Yeah, your body's like, we're missing a major part of uh, RJ's beer caloric intake, so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. My, my cells are crying out. <laughs> well, how are things going otherwise in the in the Heyman household besides the, uh, a rapidly shrinking reverend? Good. I gotta say, ministry-wise, man, this has been an amazing week. We started two new women's ministries that were just like tons of people showed up and our men's group was like 30 guys this morning, which That's is incredible. Awesome. And our our regular women's Bible studies up to like 20. And I don't know, it's just, it's really encouraging and fun. And mm. People are enjoying each other and learning stuff and sharing. And I don't know, it's very encouraging. This so, has been doing the well. latest installment of The Glory Story with exactly. RJ the Glory Heyman. Story with Losing don't weight, worry. crushing it'll it all, at church. It'll oh all end God. next week. It'll all end next week. RJ, don't worry. Somebody's going to fight you in the story. <laughs> well, I'm deeply anxious. Don't worry. Are you RJ Heyman? Don't, don't you worry. Yeah. Um, Sarah, what's going on on your front, on the home front? Any Anything exciting to report? Oh, it's just, it's a... It's just been a sweet season of ministry, and these past couple weeks, Josh has been gone for. Um, he went to check on our our house in Mississippi, and then um, actually spent uh, a lot of time with RJ and some other guys who yes, are rectors in the Episcopal Church. So I like took my kids to church with me for the first time 
with my college students. And that was Ooh. so awesome. How'd it go? And, and funny. I mean, they were really good. It is like, you know, I rarely have to face that thing that I think so many clergy women have to face where you're literally like have your hands out behind the altar and you're saying the Eucharistic prayer and you're also like sort of glaring at your 12 year old out of the corner <laughs> of your eye. You know, I was like, oh, this is a new thing for us. Um, but but yeah, really well. I mean, our, my kids felt like such like, you know badasses because they were like around the college kids and they you know got to hear about college life at rice which is a little bit like harry potter um mm-hmm. so it was i don't know it was really sweet it was great that's great yeah yeah i feel like it's life in charlottesville the only it's not even a sadness but uh we usually get snow here and this year oh, has been yeah. i mean it was like 65 degrees yesterday yeah and uh it's sort of this it's like climate whiplash is what it really feels like right now because it'll be 17 degrees one morning and then nothing but um i have such fond memories of sledding with my boys and sledding myself and we haven't got to do that yet so my hope my prayer is that we do get a little bit of snow not so much that it inconveniences us right but that that whole snow day thing i talk about in seculosity is is uh where everyone feels permission to to take a deep breath is um i miss it i like it and so we'll, we'll see well, this first uh, th- article was sent to us by Rutger Jan Heyman, um, and it's Sarah. It's thrusting us into the world of athletics, uh, sports. <laughs> um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who you may know from such films as, as Airplane and... Um, <laughs> and Lou uh, Alcindor. Lou yeah. The, the, the known most famously for having holding the, the all-time... Scoring record for the NBA. Well, his record was broken this past week, I believe, by LeBron James. And so, uh, Abdul-Jabbar, who those who follow him know that he's become a writer and a, an activist, but really he's, he's, he's got a very active uh, web presence and kind of, um, he's almost a journalist, a pundit, what, what have you interesting interesting man uh with with quite a perspective so he wrote that you rj you sent this to us i'll read a little bit of it and then i want to hear from you what what you thought about it because this is kind of a a major thing that's been coming in the world of professional sports this is kareem writing about what i think about lebron breaking my nba scoring record says this, LeBron James passed my scoring record and now is the leading scorer in NBA history. It takes unbelievable drive, dedication, and talent to survive in the NBA long enough to rack up that number of points when the average NBA career lasts only 4.5 years. It's not just about putting the ball through the hoop. It's about staying healthy and skilled enough to climb the steep mountain in ever-thinning oxygen over many years when most other players have tapped out. He says, I'm 75, though. The only time I ever think of the record is when someone brings it up. If I had a choice of having my scoring record remain intact for another hundred years or spend one afternoon with my grandchildren, I'd be on the floor in seconds stacking Legos and eating Uncrustables. (laughs) And yet, whenever a sports record is broken, including mine, it's a time for celebration. It means someone has pushed the boundaries of what we thought was possible to a whole new level. And when one person climbs higher than the last person, we all feel like we are capable of being more. That is the magic of sports. To see something seemingly impossible, reminding us that if one person can do it, then we all somehow share in that achievement. 
This is all about LeBron doing something no one else has done, about scoring more points than anyone has been able to in 75 years. There are no yeah buts, just praise where it is rightfully and righteously due. Bottom line about LeBron and me, LeBron makes me love the game again, and he makes me proud to be part of an ever-widening group of athletes who actively care about their community. Now, RJ, I mean, before we throw it to you, I just thought this was a remarkably gracious thing. You know, you, you were so surrounded by, you know, we, we've talked a lot about generational kind of conflict or tension before, and especially when it comes to really high achieving people, kind of blessing those who come after them or getting out of the way, um, you just don't see it that, that, that often. And here you have him being so unconcerned with this sort of ego, what what someone would consider a blow to one's ego or one's identity, because it's not a small thing he was, this title he had. And yet I love it when he says that we all share in the achievement of one person. Mm. How can I not as a Christian sort of be like, oh, you don't say. That sounds pretty (laughs) great. Um, There's that that vicarious, um, almost, uh, you know, imputation, aspect to how he understands a record being broken more globally and then here personally. But what, why did you send this to us? What, what struck you about it? I also thought it was just so humble and so starkly in contrast with how so many people, and maybe men particularly, but not just men, um, their relationship with their sort of legacy especially if they've been very successful. They tend to really hold on to it. They tend to degrade people who come after them. You know, so much of the time, athletes will say, well, if I'd played today, I would have had twice as many points or twice as many touchdowns. And they and they look down on the generation, as you said, sort of this generational um, arrogance and just the, the looseness with which he holds it. You know, in contrast to some other, uh, I will say this, in contrast to some other great athletes, you know, who you feel like are still Michael Jordan, is that what you're talking about? Maybe Michael Jordan. um, (laughs) Maybe maybe Tom Brady. Maybe Tom Brady should not have come back for another year and had his marriage fall apart. Right. You know what I mean? Mm. Maybe Cristiano Ronaldo should not be playing for $100 million a year in Saudi Arabia. Mm. You know, maybe maybe you, like John Elway did it well. To know when to call it quits and to um, be sort of gracious about it and mm-hmm. to, to uh, put your sense of self-worth in things that really matter, like your grandkids. Mm-hmm. I loved that. I also loved how he very gently and wonderfully um, rebutted Ma- uh, Magic Johnson because Magic Johnson tried to make a big thing of it. And he was like, look, I love Magic. We've been friends forever. But he got this wrong. Like, I, I don't care that much. And then... He also talked about LeBron, who I guess somebody had asked LeBron uh, about his relationship with Kareem, and, Kareem, and LeBron was like, we don't have a relationship. We just don't. And Kareem said, you know what? That's true, and that's kind of on me mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, I haven't reached out to him in the way that I should have, but I'll try to be more intentional about that because I think he's a great guy, and I really respect the man that he is and the teammate he is and the way that he's also stood up for things that are important. So it was just so suffused with wisdom and humility and grace, um, you know, because we all want to scale those kinds of heights, right? To achieve those kinds of things. But so often people who do, it um, comes to define them in a way that's just so unhealthy. You know, like mm. the guy who shows up to his 30th high school reunion wearing his Letterman jacket, <laughs> you know, even though he's 50 pounds overweight or something like that, or trying to relive past glories. But um, Kareem, uh, Kareem moved on. And it, I guess it also reminded me, I think Jacob Smith sent out a picture once of a, of a tree in New York City that was surrounded by um, one of those little wrought iron fences, and there's a plaque on it that said, um, plant a tree and live forever. 
You know, we're always finding a way to, to, to project ourselves into the future, except the tree was cut down. It was just a stump. <laughs> you, oh. you know, that, <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. the, that's the irony yeah. of that picture. Huh? That's the irony of that picture, right? Plant a tree and live forever, except the tree had been, cu- had been cut down. Mm. And we're always looking for ways to be important enough to live forever, when really I think the key to freedom and happiness is more von Zinzendorf. Do what you do, uh, do it well, preach the gospel, then die and be forgotten, and that's okay. You know, and I felt a little bit of that in Kareem's essay. What do you think, That's Sarah? all I have to say. Sarah, commentary on sports? What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's the relational aspect that is really interesting. Also, I'm here for an uncrustable shout out. So <laughs> thank you. Um, especially from an athlete. I'm like, yes, uh, enjoy grandfatherhood with your processed peanut butter and jelly cheese, uh, peanut butter and jelly. Those are delicious. Um, yeah, I mean, I, this is like very much a reality in my life. So I, I mean, I, I totally agree with him. I just feel like I've gotten the reality earlier. Like hmm. I was texting with a student of mine yesterday about some technology stuff I was trying to figure out. And I said to her, like, I know a lot of people are like, Hey, like, um, I'm 40, but I'm, I'm like young for 40. And I was like, Hey, I'm 40, but I'm like 80 for 40. <laughs> um, so because I just, I've, we've been through so much. It's, it's mm. hard. It's like my whole vision on the world has shifted so dramatically away from worldly success, Mm. like so dramatically away from it that I can't even, it feels like another planet to me. Mm. Um, And I understand that other people desire it and I don't judge that genuinely. I, I just, I, I'm actually like kind of marvel at it now because I'm like, Oh, that's so great. Like you still have that in you. Like, hi, I wish I had that, you know, um, but it's gone. And, mm. and I, I do feel 80 or at least like a 75 year old basketball player. I don't know. I just, I love how gracious he is in terms of passing the torch. I love that. Like, I don't know what, what did magic Johnson say? Like, I'm curious. He just like, he just basically said, Kareem's going to be kind of upset about this. This is going to really, he's, and Kareem says he knew how competitive I used to be. And, and that's a different person slightly, but. And Kareem doesn't even say, he's like, maybe if I was still in my forties and someone had broken my record just five years after I retired, I would have been tempted to suit back up and beat them or something. But he's, he's you know, now he's 75. It's too late. So he's pretty honest. I mean, you kind of wish that these guys had their own, like you know, RJ's church's men's group, right? That like, you know, that they could really welcome Tom Brady into right now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And just be like, buddy, like, let's, you know, let's go sit in a monastery for for 48 hours. Like, what's going on, man? Like, I think part of the reason we love this is it's just so refreshing. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, American athletes are like the closest things we have to like Roman God gladiator types. And so to have one of them, not just be human, which is of course always a thing we talk about, you know, but, but to be, uh, this humble and, and, and at the end of the day, want the same things we want, like want to be connected to family. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of unexpected. Yeah. I also, I also see it as a, um, I mean, Sarah, you'd sent us something this week about sort of 
positive masculinity in sports and it's like all these oh, yeah. all these tennis players basically cry, yeah. crying and, and like but I, I actually do i do see this as something uh, the, of two two men and the older one is blessing the younger one and yes. like yes. that is just yes. uh, that's a rare thing in any um yes. male culture but so necessary like so many men that means a lot to, to i just say it to me to other mm-hmm. people i mean i i gotta give my father some credit here and because he when he, he wrote this book about aging last year and he, one of the things he says is like what purposes do old older men have like that kind mm-hmm. of is distinct and he he says one of them is to to bless those who are coming after them to specifically uh. encourage now whether that's on instagram or elsewhere but it's it's that's what you can do at that age that you can't really do at any other age right and so and you know to be honest with you i see it in the church i see older leaderships i mean in my, our context it's bishops who just never ever want to <laughs> let go and really bless the next generation and i, yeah. I see it in, in rectors too holding on to faded glory i, I see it in it, that's what that's when it gets to be quote-unquote toxic leadership where you're just consolidating power all the time and you 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 feel like it's your role to kind of keep to to make sure they know who's boss and yes. it's such a more powerful testimony and i think a much more graceful graceful one to do what kareem does here and i just i think i don't think that, that was part of his mind in going about this he sounds like a pretty just kind of a i don't know in for lack of a better word sort of enlightened man who's who's had a lot of time to reflect on things and um it's so interesting because I'm, I'm reading a book right now um and this and i just finished it this morning but in the book there was this uh moment uh where the father is dying and all the son wants is a blessing from him mm-hmm. and they had a very fractured relationship and the father gives it and the son receives it but then the father says well, you know how hard that was for me to do. <laughs> right. And I think one thing that's so beautiful about this is it seems very effortless. Like even in that, you know, the dialogue about the grandkids, it's like, it's effortless. Well, I can tell you right now what I'd do. I'd be on the floor with Legos, you yeah. know, like oh. this is, this is um, a part of who he is. Well, I hope, I hope to, I hope to remember this when I get, <laughs> when I get older, I'm yeah. sure it's we'll harder. It's we'll harder you. than you think when, when it actually comes down to it. Uh, but I, I, I just want to, it's incredible to see. And it's, and it's heartening yeah. to me as a man who, because, uh, and also I'd say within Mockingbird or maybe just on our, on our podcast, we, we tend to poo poo accomplishments a little bit or that, that, that is somehow works, you know? Um, and yes, they can be so enshrined and so much the person's identity. And yet here, this is, I think a proper, beautiful picture of, this kind of worldly accomplishment, we all share in it. And it's this, it's, it's imputed to the rest of us. And, and I'm just excited. It makes me love the game again. And that, Mm. that, you know, what is it? God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does like that's Mm. on display here. RJ, you were going to say one more thing. That it also calls out, and he's had a lot of time to think about this because he retired like, you know, 30 years ago or something. But I've, talked to a few different people recently who either who either recently or a few years ago retired themselves and it was really hard they just lost all sense of themselves they got um depressed they felt aimless um you know uh, sometimes people retired um become alcoholics you know because they they have nothing better to do or some they they have health so that's also really a thing like um it is hard to give yourself 
sort of completely to something in that kind of way and then just sort of stop doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've seen that over and over again. So I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think, you know, a big part of it is like have hobbies. Hobbies are important. <laughs> Cultivate hobbies so when you retire, you have something to do. Well, let's, let's talk about a polar opposite view of accomplishment. And, and uh, in this in, oh, insane article, but also extremely well-written article from The Cut, it was written by Caitlin Moscatello called The Fleischman Effect. Now, Fleischman is in Trouble was a book written by Taffy Broadusser Ackner, and um, it was also developed into a TV series that went on Hulu starring Jesse Eigenberg and Lizzie Kaplan and Claire Danes. And I guess the show has had a major, a big wake among a certain type of lady in Manhattan. Now, this is what she writes, and this article, by the way, was all over the place. So clearly the, the article named something I think that is out there, uh, even for people who do not live in a brownstone in the Upper West Side. Uh, she says, many of uh, the certain set of New York women read the book years ago and watched the show only to find themselves turned upside down, just like the opening sequence of the show. For them, watching Rachel, a high-earning talent agent desperate to be accepted by her Manhattan uh, private school set, watching her mentally break under the pressures of her career, marriage, motherhood, and childhood trauma, and Libby, a magazine writer who hasn't written in two years and moved to suburban New Jersey with her family, long for the possibilities of her youth and search for the pieces of herself she can still recognize, has set off an internal alarm that sounds a lot like the voiceover in the show. Is all this really worth it? Am I spending these years, maybe the best years, focused on the right things? When does it get easier? Now, uh, Caitlin uh, Moscatello, she talks to a bunch of women who fit this demographic. And one of them says, the Rachel character gave us permission to feel bad for ourselves for a minute. Um, I think that women like me are thoughtful and mindful enough to know that life is not so bad. Uh, we don't ever want to complain, but Rachel just let us feel sad that we feel like we're going to lose it a lot of the time. And she, this woman made clear multiple times that she doesn't expect sympathy from other people. Um, since the show, one woman found herself making dinner plans with friends from other parts of her life and is re-examining her own relationship to work. Watching Rachel invest so much of herself in her career, seemingly at any cost, this woman says, I did find that to be legitimately ugly, even if I've been guilty of it. In a certain sense, all of us who are in that high-pressure city environment, um, and it is absolutely an environment of nothing is ever good enough, work becomes so important. I felt so defined by achievement and feeling the, like, what is the next rung on this ladder? Watching that dramatized, you're like, this is disgusting. You have more than enough. Then for others, watching Libby languish in suburbia was more difficult. Uh, what do you do when the thing you thought you always wanted isn't a possibility anymore, one woman said. She recently found herself thinking about that question in Target, which was even more depressing. You know how Carl Lagerfeld was like, you're in sweatpants, that means you've failed? Well, that's kind of how I feel about Target. Whew. Speaks to another woman who says this, my dream life would be to live in Brooklyn and send my daughters to St. Anne's, but the reality of my life is I live in the suburbs and haven't taken a day off in two years. I get up at 6 a.m., I work until my daughter wakes up, then I do breakfast and get her ready, then the nanny comes, I work all day, I relieve the nanny, then get back on my computer and work until midnight after my daughter goes to sleep, and I do that every day, and it's still not enough. 
She understood Rachel's relentless pursuit of earning more, make more money, be more successful. I see myself in that 100%. Watching Fleischman myself, Moscatello concludes, I couldn't help but think of how the show aired at a moment of peak exhaustion for women, even privileged women who have it so much better than most. The story takes place in 2016, but it finds us roughly seven years later, battered from parenting and working a pandemic. Rachel and Libby are the manifestation of different struggles women face and impossible expectations, but a core similarity is that they are effing tired. A lot for a TV show to bring up, but it's clearly struck a chord. You know, um, it's amazing to me how... um, it's kind of like a, a demographic of women that's both villainized um, and doesn't feel like they have any right to their own suffering. Um, and yet they all have this collective sense of feeling trapped and on a treadmill to nowhere. And there's like a prime, this, this show has sort of unleashed like a primal scream among that kind of privileged set of women. And I think it's beyond that, by the way. I've had conversations with you, Sarah, and with our friend Jane Anderson Grizzle, just the the, uh, palpable unhappiness I sense among uh, a lot of of women in their 40s that, that, um, you know, that we, we, that Ada Calhoun book, Why We Can't Sleep, is all about it. But the, the amount of sort of Divorces initiated by uh, women in that context, and yeah. and uh, just th- there's something is uh, awry, and I feel like this puts a finger on part of it. But here I am speaking for a different set of people. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, the, it's funny. The thing that stuck out at me was this bit about how condescending uh, the world can be to stay-at-home moms, where they say they have the hardest job in the world, but in actuality, the hardest job in the world. Uh, is being a mother with a job. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, that definitely resonates. Um, I think for a lot of women I know, and I, I think, you know, I think this is multi-layered. I certainly think the pandemic has not helped the situation. Um, and it's really hard to see up close. Yeah. It's hard it's hard to see uh friends get divorced. I know we've we've all had that experience. It's it's hard to see um it's hard to see the effect it has on children. Um but honestly when I read this, it just it does sound truly miserable. Mm. I mean, that kind of workload sounds truly miserable. And I don't understand l- I don't understand it. And and I guess I'm just naive and maybe I grew up with more resources. And so these are people who like really wanted more resources in their life. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, I, it just is heartbreaking to me to read. And also like, I, I want to say like, we're not immune from this in the church world. I mean, I know, I mean, and I don't know which side of this has puts me on, but I remember when I had my daughter, like there was a senior clergy woman to me who had a certain amount of power in my life. And she said, basically, when are you going to get a real job where you work on Sunday mornings? And I was like, well, I mean, that's kind of hard to do because I've got, uh, you know, this baby and I've got a toddler. And she was like, well, when is Josh going to step in and be responsible on mm. Sunday mornings? And I was like, well, I mean, <laughs> what does that mean? You know, like. <laughs> Just this real push. It just, I, I, I'm always hesitant in these conversations because the last thing I want to do, and I think any most women want to advocate for, is some sort of a like 
1950s model that frankly we always harken back to but didn't really exist for most women mm -hmm. right like both my grandmothers worked so I mean I you know um but there was just there were less demands on everyone um I say that carefully, obviously, uh, considering race, that is a pretty bold statement, but, but, you know, th this was that, that was a simpler in some ways time. Right. And so now we're facing this just like consumption on consumption on consumption and someone has to fund it. And then you just begin to wonder if, I don't know y'all, if we're all just sitting in a room with a bunch of shit we bought, but no time to open the boxes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just so bleak. And I, you know, I read this and honestly, the only answer to me is like, y'all need to go to church. <laughs> y'all need to get around some people that aren't your peers. You need to have some deeper conversations. You need to get off Instagram therapy. Like I, it just is, it's so bleak to me. And of course, I guess I'm kind of talking my way through this, but of course, like divorce makes sense maybe in those situations because it seems like at least it's going to change one thing. Mm. You know, at least, I, I mean, you can't get rid of the kids. You had them. You can't end the career. You know, how are you going to buy the stuff that's advertised you on Instagram? Mm. You, you can get a divorce. Yeah. I don't know. RJ, what do you, what do you, uh, you, you, you've got some, dare I say, a little experience here. Not, not as a woman. <laughs> not as, as a woman. As far as I know. Um, <clears throat> I guess, first of all, I'll say that I, I have a little bit of what's described here inside of me. Mm. Right. The it's never enough. It mm -hmm. is never enough. Go, 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 go. Same or not and not in the same pace as enough. It has to accelerate. Things have to get better, but almost in a way that accelerates. And you have to do everything perfectly and as well as you possibly can and being exhausted all the time. And I, I have some of that inside of me. Absolutely. Um and it also reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend of mine in Texas and Houston, um, who was very successful. He was an energy trader and did very well. Um, but his pattern of life was interesting. Like he'd worked for Enron for a while, you know, and didn't go to jail or anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was, uh, he actually said Enron was like the best place he ever worked. It was very meritocratic. And, and a lot of people who worked for Enron said that. Did very well. When that kind of blew up, um, he had the resources to kind of like take, take a year off, basically, and not work. And he took his kids to, to Africa for like a few months, and he trained for uh, triathlons and whatever. And then he got back into the working world. And again, it was like, go, 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 80 hours a week, training, going. And then he um, sort of retired. You know, I remember talking to him once about um, how it seemed to be all or nothing. Mm. Like either you're working 80 hour weeks or you're not. And he sort of said, yeah. He said, in my world, there really is no in between. Mm -hmm. You're either all in or you're all out. And it can't be one or the other. Yeah. And that seems true about like the kind of life that's being described here in New York, where like, you know, private school tuition for a kid is like $50,000 a year. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, right. and um, housing costs are millions of dollars a year. And, yeah. and um, this sounds, you know, very bougie to say, but like New York is a hard place to be in the summer with kids. And so if you can afford to get out and be somewhere uh, that's a little bit cooler and maybe near a body of water and put kids in the kids in camp, like you do that. But it's just, there's no way unless you're independently wealthy or a trust fund kid or something, you know, that you, that you can sort of afford to have a life that's not go, 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 go all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's wrong. Maybe there is a way, maybe there is a way to do it. Maybe, maybe that's a lie. 
But when you're surrounded by people, everyone you're working with is all in. And, you know, and college is $70,000 a year. You know, how much is rice? Oh, you know? my gosh. It's fi- it's 50 a year. Yeah. That's it? I think I'm so. I'm surprised. That's I mean, cheap. That's cheap. I mean, as someone who's about to pay for two kids to go to college yeah. uh, next year, um, it, it doesn't feel like there's an alternative. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're either all in or you're all out, and it's tough to find a sustainable it takes existence. A, it takes a lot of energy to see through this all the time. I mean, it's like, yes. there's one woman in there who says, you know, I just, I thought maybe I should, maybe, maybe I could get to the point where I'm not looking up people's house value on Zillow the second I'm invited to a dinner party at their house. Like, and, and I was like, whoa, that's, maybe I should start doing that. But I mean, it, it, <laughs> the, uh, it, it was, it was, it was, uh, I, I know that if you're in that hive mind kind of thing it takes a lot of energy to continually tell yourself you know it doesn't matter it's like we're all gonna die everything's like this is all i want to be kareem abdul jabbar it's easier for him to say he scored a gazillion points and um and and there's all sorts of reasons not to do it i just want to say i sympathy because i i will say yes this applies to new york but we we get into all these hyper contextual debates sometimes i mean I, everywhere i go people seem to be feeling like they need more than they currently have i mean i, I don't mm. know anyone who like what do they say you you rise to your level of like expenses so it's like everyone i know yes. needs about like just a little bit more money to be comfortable have, yes. and that applies to the people who are you know making seven figures and the people who are making five like it, it's all it, it, it there seems to be something about the human condition that where we want more than we have and what is i read someone's say greed is a is a sin in every language or something like that and um lord save us from this and and, you know i when when there all this talk about enough and nothing's ever enough and these priorities i mean i I do feel like i have in my head the interlocutor that says mockingbird sometimes we preach this law and gospel stuff is directed at very neurotic type a achiever types you know who are on the coast and it's it's very specific to yes that works if you're in that situation but i i i mean i I, partly i read this and i think well this seems to have resonated far beyond the boroughs of manhattan and the people in the top income brackets and i do think there's there's somewhat even if it does only uh if it is a a sort of a a emphasis of the gospel that speaks specifically to these such people i mean what's wrong with that i mean like don't they need these people this 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 demographic that i read in here and i would often find myself like on the outskirts of it all the time they they they're they're dying for a word of grace like who who doesn't want that i mm. i mean and yet rj i mean we've we've been in a situation where we've tried to really bring that to bear in populations that look similar to this and there's a deep resistance to it um uh, well yeah because you're like pulling their whole life apart dave well and i'll say i'm not experiencing that now i experienced it with 20 somethings yeah yeah you know like people on the other side totally. of their life they're like yes totally but people who are still in in the achievement yeah. mode and i will say also there is something addictive and infectious about the kind of energy that you have in Manhattan, like I'm, it's crazy. Like yeah. I miss that. It's it's like I, one of my friends said who lived there for a while. It's like in New York, you can walk out your, it, you can walk out your door, and and anything could happen. Mm. Anything could you could end up anywhere. Anything could happen. And if you've, um, I saw. So I don't. Well, know. we have addiction as jo- we have achievement as joy, and we have achievement here as absolute um, uh, bondage. You know. Yes. Law. Yeah. I also yes. just have to say, like, where are the men? 
Yeah. Like, where are the men? Like, this whole article is about these women leaving these, They're like... They're working 100 hours for gold. Miserable <laughs> lives. Yeah, but, like, where are the marriage conversations where you're both sitting at the table and you're like, this is not the life I wanted? Or why is this the life I want? Like... I think this article more than anything speaks to the lack of vulnerability in marriages where people aren't having real conversations about like looking around and saying like, is this what we wanted? Yeah. Are we happy? Do we feel connected? <laughs> yeah. But Sarah, I remember a conversation with a buddy of mine who was a doctor in New York and he, he wasn't a therapist, but he functionally was because all of his patients would tell him everything. Yeah. And he was like, RJ, it's easier to find a new wife than a new career. <laughs> That's so you know, sad. It's so sad. And like, he knew it was sad. Yeah. But that was the mentality of a lot of these very successful guys. Like, I'm not going to let my wife get in the way of my earning potential. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Well, they it's, need help. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, I, yes. this is like. Well, that's not just you know, men he, in Manhattan. I just put it that way. No, there. it's no, not. That's right. No, that's, yeah, I mean, that's I right. just, it's like, to me, it speaks to like the, just the siloed off nature that like of, of marriage. Uh modern marriage i don't know it's just super bleak yeah and i'm i see it from uh, i see it the, the the other way around in spades you know the, yeah well it's easier to find a new husband than to find a new totally. career yes um yes well there's let's let's i want to let's go from those understandings of achievement to <laughs> a slightly more i think a, a theological one which wesley hill wrote about uh, on covenant called secular neglect salvation anyway He's talking about the book of Esther. Um, mm. He says in, in, his, in, a, in a short provocative book, Esther and Her Elusive God, John Anthony Dunn points out that Esther, it's the New Old Testament uh, book. the book's Not Esther Perel. Not Esther Perel. Uh, <laughs> that Esther, the book's protagonist, and Mordecai, her cousin, aren't really depicted as conscientious obser observers of the Torah. Many readers have noticed their lack of prayer to God or any mention of God in the book at all, for that matter. The complete absence of any longing for home for Zion and a rebuilt temple and freedom from gent Gentile dom domination. And at an absolutely crucial juncture when they're facing the imminent prospect of genocide, the neglect of the Passover. Dunn concludes, we have no reason to assume Esther or Mordecai have much faith at all. The people of God portrayed in Esther appear to have experienced a decline in faith and religious adherence to the God of their ancestors. If Dunn is right about all this, Hill writes, then it may be that we need to rethink the implicit theology many of us think we've discovered in Esther. It could be that what we have in Esther isn't just a theology of divine providence and protection, but also something like a doctrine of the, quote, justification of the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. God's Ooh. commitment to stand by God's people when they're at their covenant-keeping worst and see them through anyway. In this way, there may be more theology, not less, in what Dunn calls this most secular of biblical books. As God not only intervenes, God intervenes precisely at the point when no human virtue or piety would compel him to do so, where the only hope is the sheer divine intention to bless, save, and protect, regardless of whether it's acknowledged by the saved ones at all. I like it. That's great. Yeah. I mean... I mean, I love this because one thing that it's so interesting to do uh, spiritual work with young people and that that you realize how much it's been drilled into them that church is like law and that you, you know, along with following all the rules, you have to follow the rule of feelings, right? So you have to feel a certain way about God mm. 
Um, and if you don't feel that way about God, then you shouldn't go to church and, um, and God doesn't care about you. And so it's a constant kind of conversation of like, yeah, it doesn't actually matter how you feel about God. Mm. Like God still pursues you and loves you just over and over again. Um, and so you can show up here just because there's free food, you know, like (laughs) literally can be the only reason you show up and God still loves you and that, you know, and we're happy you're here and God's happy you're here. So I really, I love this. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is like a great way to preach this text that God, God shows up no matter what, you know, I mean, it's just like this, the Samson and Delilah thing that I love so much that, you know, Neil called out uh, to me, but just this idea that, you know, it's not like anybody was like really following the rules in that context. And, and God, you know, so often we, we love that phrase of fall from grace, mm. which is not in scripture. No, fall, right? fall into grace, right? We love oh. the phrase fall from grace, but really like when we see people falling from grace, God sees someone who needs to be rescued. Mm. And that's all, that's all scripture is over and over again. Yeah. Um, but I love him saying that there. That's cool. He, that's, he says he quotes some preacher who calls Esther the most Christological book in the in the, in the, oh in the Old Testament. Gosh, awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. RJ, what do you have to say? Anything? No, that's just, I, I agree with everything Sarah said. Like we've uh, been going through Matthew and a few of our Bible studies at church. And I, the genealogy is like the most boring thing in the world. And yet it's not. If you look at the characters in the genealogy, because there's so much bad behavior. Yeah. There's prostitution and incest and trickery and murder and yeah. adultery. And, but it's, but, but it's so cool. The people I've talked to, they get it. I'm like, what does this mean? And they're like, it means that God works through sinners. Mm. It means that his purposes move forward in spite of our mistakes. You know, um, it means that Jesus is for everybody. You know, Gentile, Jew, sinner, and, you know, well, only so there's no righteous people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that. That's the story of the Bible. There's a it's wonderful um, talk that was given at our Orlando conference by a guy named Pastor Al Hill, who uh, went through the genealogies just to basically make it clear that mm. it's all grace. I mean, that it's kind of from the top down. He just went through the genealogies and been like, this is, this person's illegitimate and this person was that. And, you know, here, here you go. Like, let's, when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's quite, um, all, kind of like just jaw dropping. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, the other thing I have to say about Esther that I think is very important, and I'm a hundred percent, I've told this story before on this podcast before, but one of my d- very dear childhood friends, a girl named Monique, who grew up deeply Pentecostal mm-hmm. would watch the 700 club every morning. And she had a cat she had named Esther after the biblical character. And she would hold Esther up and they would say the sinner's prayer for salvation together. <laughs> so I think that every time I hear Esther, <laughs> Esther, the cat getting saved every morning on the 700 club. Cats need it. That's incredible. <laughs> I love it. Mississippi's a beautiful place to grow up. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, this is one of the things here that I find so comforting about this this just Hill's description of Esther is that people are not sort of being dealt with according to um, their faithfulness or their piety or certainly their accomplishment. And um, and yet, uh, th- there was another article that appeared this week that found us tied together um, by our lack thereof. You know, in my talks about um, the low anthropology book, you know, one, it, the, I, I've, one of the ways in is to talk about imposter syndrome. You know, this sense, uh, there's this, uh, I, I reference this cartoon of people on a crowded street and everyone going in different directions. They're all thinking the same thing. And what they're thinking is that everyone else has it together. I still have no idea what's going on. 
and that we are sort of united in our confusion. And instead of that being a place of judgment, that in fact makes people, everyone feels better when they hear about that. Um, that's sort of a way into understanding why low anthropology is counterintuitive good news. Anyways, uh, I've been using this phrase, imposter syndrome, and everyone's talking about it. And I, you know, Drew Barrymore was talking about it the other day on her um, talk show, which is, people keep sending me clips of. Clearly, she's really talking about real things on that. She's been through, she's been through a few things. Yeah. She, yeah. She's, she's, she's she had has. some moments. My God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you read about her background. She never had a chance. Um, no. So, Anyway, Leslie Jameson, who spoke at a Mockingbird conference a long time ago, wrote something in The New Yorker about the history of imposter syndrome and how we're all talking about it now. The title of the article is Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. And um, she begins by talking about Pauline Clance, who coined the term imposter phenomenon. It was, well, she did it with, uh, with her friend, uh, Suzanne Imes. Um, and the, the pair had spent five years talking to more than 150 successful women, uh, and they recorded their findings in a paper, The Imposter Phenomenon in High-Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. And she describes both of these women who wrote this um, had growing up, they'd always thought that they'd like failed every test they took, and if like... They always got A's, you know, that sort of thing. They always felt like they didn't, mm-hmm. didn't belong. And um, so they're basically talking about an experience of intellectual phoniness or living in perpetual fear that some significant person will discover that they are indeed intellectual imposters as being particularly widespread among high achieving or professional at that point. It was, I think, 1985 when this was published. Um, uh, women. So we're back to talking about ladies, but it's it's much more as I've gone around the country talking about this. It's I see the men hold up their hands. She says almost 50 years after its formulation, the concept of imposter syndrome, and it was originally called phenomenon, not syndrome, has achieved a level of cultural saturation that Clance and Imes never imagined. Maya Angelou once said, I have written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. Neil Gaiman, the comic book and, and novelist, uh, in a commencement address that went viral, described his fear of being busted by the, quote, fraud police, whom he imagined showing up at his door with a clipboard to tell him he had no right to live the life he was living. Clance and Imes describe the cycle that imposter feelings often produce, a sense of impending failure that that inspires frenzied hard work and short-lived gratification when failure is staved off, quickly followed by the return of the old conviction that failure is imminent. Repeated successes usually don't break the cycle. All the frenzied efforts and mental calculations that are directed into preventing the discovery of one's inadequacy and fraudulence ultimately just reinforce the belief in this inadequate, fraudulent version of the self. The experience is more specific than mere self-doubt, Jameson writes. It's a fear of being found out, revealed for what I really was. And it was an anxiety that I felt complicit in, having produced these false fronts with my lies. But she talks about there's a, there's a generational and, in fact, a racial component to it. And she, she says, when I asked my mother, who's 78, if the concept resonated, she said it didn't. She'd struggled more with proving herself than with feeling like a fraud. She told me she suspected that most women in her generation, and especially in her mother's, were more likely to feel the opposite, that they were being underestimated. Uh. Hmm. And yet, uh, Clance and Imes still thought to, uh, they wanted to, f- they wanted to, um, 
describe it as an experience rather than a pathology. Their aim was always to normalize this experience rather than uh, make it into a syndrome. Uh, Jameson concludes by saying, if we reclaim the imposter phenomenon from the false category of syndrome, then we can allow it to do the work it does best, not as a, as a vague synonym for insecurity, but as a way to describe the more specific delusion of being a fraud who has successfully deceived some external audience. Understood like this, it becomes an experience not diluted, but defined by its ubiquity. It names the gap that persists between the internal experiences of selfhood, multiple, contradictory, incoherent, and the imperative to present a more coherent, composed, continuous self to the world. The phenomenon names an unspoken, ongoing crisis arising from the gaps between these various versions of ourselves and designates not a syndrome, but an inescapable part of being alive. I'm curious, what are spaces where you all feel this? Every Sunday morning. Every single Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Where it's like, well, (laughs) today's the day when I either uh, say something that makes no sense or I go too far Mm -hmm. or uh, people uh, discover that I actually have nothing to say or that I have nothing new to say, Mm -hmm. you know, that they'll be like, RJ, you've told that same story 40 times. Although I was joking with my men's group this morning, I was like, I was like, I love you guys because you never remember anything I say. So I can just keep on saying the same thing over and over and over again. Well, it's, I, I, I feel at any time I'm interviewed about my book or any books, mm. I'm, I feel at any time yeah. I'm called to looked at as any kind of spiritual authority in anything. Um, mm. And I, I feel it when I'm asked to be talk about being a, a parent or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. they they talk they talk about it as being so specific to women, and I don't want to deny that. But right. I want to say that I I feel it all the time, and I, right. I, I yes. and most of the guys I know, if they're being at all honest, they feel it too. Yeah. She yes. does mention that it 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 can have a it does have like a um. It's especially pronounced on people who've crossed certain thresholds, and that's why maybe a certain generation of women felt it very acutely. But if you've switched kind of from working class to professional class, or you're the first person mm-hmm. to go to college in your family, sure, something yeah. like that, it can be more pronounced. But yeah. um, I was honestly preparing for this episode. I was, I was talking with Sam Bush, who's next door, who writes for Mockingbird and is ordained uh, minister. And he was prepping for his sermon. And he said, yeah, Dave, this is the week that they all find out that I'm uh, totally a joke. And I was like, I was like, well, we already know that, Sam, but... Exactly, last week. Because you said it in your sermon last time, but at the same time, it's like, I feel that way every Sunday. Yeah. Yes. I don't know, Sarah. What do you what do you think about imposter syndrome, or let's call it? I mean, phenomenon, I was, I was condition. Sort of thinking about, yeah. I was thinking about when is it that I feel this? You know, like what is that? And I was thinking about church, but for me, like I think because I've kind of created what I do, I really love it, and I don't feel I get nervous, but I don't feel an, like an imposter. But like the second someone is like someone other than my husband. Is like, hey, would you come, like, lead worship at my Episcopal church on Sunday morning? I'm like, no, no, I, uh, uh-uh. I mean, like, that is terrifying to me, you know, because, I mean, I'm just worried I'm gonna like, you know, basically use the salad fork on the entree. Um, <laughs> I mean, as so to speak, and just like the altar is terrifying. All of that can be really terrifying to me. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think that definitely shows up, but the other space it shows up in, and I, I don't, I hope I'm not alone in this, but I, you know, 
in mom culture, I feel this a lot. Like Hmm. sometimes I just get really bored with like what we're talking about. And I'm like, am I, um, am I not a good mom? Cause this isn't interesting to me or, you know, I feel like I'm not participating enough in the stuff my kids doing. And, and then everyone will find out that I like low key, like hate trying to decide what color a t-shirt should be for homecoming, you know, like it's just, it's such a weird internal dialogue, but it's, it's so present. I, I do like this idea of it being like a phenomenon and less of a syndrome. Cause God knows we need less syndromes to be diagnosed with or self certainly self diagnosed with pathologized. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I just I just wondered like what that feels like for y'all. I I think it's um, you know, I can't help but when she keeps talking about the gap between what the world, what we present to the world, slash what we feel the world uh, reflects back to us or demands from us, versus who we actually are. I mean, that is for me when I'm preaching that that's a very potent gap in terms of uh, talking about grace and talking about forgiveness and talking about sort of mm-hmm. imputed righteousness and justification, mm-hmm. all these historical terms, I find that to be, and, and if it's if it's completely contextual and some people genuinely don't feel this way ever, I, I, I'm, that's news to me because it's never, mm-hmm. um, I mean, and she would say that there's some, she interviewed some women of color who grew up in the same way her mother did is like, I'm used to being at the table and everyone underestimating me rather yeah. than people thinking I know more than I do. Um, right. what I would say is what she talks about as being useful in it, it being that kind of point of connection. Like, I, it, it probably goes has gone overboard. I mean, Sarah, remember when you used to talk about the the blessed messes of motherhood and all oh, these ladies yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to talk about how terrible of a mother they were and like that yeah. being a different type of posture and yeah. and creating. But it's it's sort of like we're going through life just constantly with the antenna of like should and justification and like uh, con- condemnation of the law just pinging at everything we, where we are. You know, we walk into a. We walk into a, someone's house. Is this a nicer house than mine? Is this a better? Mm-hmm. Is this a? We, we go around someone's family, or they're they're a much better parent than I am. Like their kids are so happy. We're, we go to a church. The same thing's happening. Sure. And I, I think it's happening for these ladies in uh, Manhattan. And, and I don't. I think that's completely. I mean, in terms of the anthropology, I think that's completely inescapable. Like yeah. I think that's just part of like the the biofeedback <laughs> of our brains and our bodies. But I think the you know, we can't tr- control our first thought, but we can like reflect on our second thought. And I think, you know, it, it the, the second thought is, is like always interesting. Like, do we, can we kind of take a deep breath and be like, I'm just glad to be in their house. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad their house is not in Turkey and Syria. Like, I don't know, Oof. like whatever it, I, it's just, I don't know. I was actually thinking about, you know, the Oscars is coming up and we've been watching some of the nominated movies. And so have you guys seen, um, Everything, everywhere, all at once. No. Have you seen that yet? No. No. no? I'm told I've so got to see. T- it's supposed to be so fabulous. It's insanely Is good. It? Yeah. And okay. there's this incredible metaphor for human existence, which is this um, giant swirling everything bagel of death, which is just incredible. But a really powerful moment in the movie is when one of the characters um, just sort of says, look, you know, we're we're all confused. We're all scared. None of us have any idea what's going on yeah. ever. And it's that way all the time. Yeah. And the only thing we can possibly do is show a little bit of kind of kindness yeah. to each other. And it's sort of about the triumph of, of, of kindness and love over kind of a, a, a nihilistic um, 
approach to life. And then the other, it's a really good movie. And the other image that came to mind is we also watched The Fablemans, guessing the name. Mm. I've been told the one I need to watch is to Leslie. I've heard that that is the most beautiful picture of Grace. You and, you and four other people. Well, I'm, I don't care if it's, there's, there's some <laughs> it plot. It looks amazing. It's supposed to be Jamie about didn't want to watch it, but Mar- love Marshall was the in the love room. List. Anyway. Yeah, m- m- yeah, that's right. Jay- Marshall was in the room. We're like, we don't think this is a six-year-old movie. Yeah, so, uh, it doesn't when, look when, like it is. When we put him to bed, if we, if we can stay awake, we'll watch that movie. Um, but in The Fablemans, uh, the Steven Spielberg character, and I assume this is true, um, who's a total outcast sort of at his school, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism, but he makes the, the movie for the senior day at his high school. And there's this one incredibly handsome athletic jock that sort of ends up being the star of the movie, and Spielberg makes him sort of look like a god, basically. Mm. And the jock afterwards confronts him, and he says, why did you do that? Like, I can never live up to the image that you put on that screen. I will never live this down. I can never be the person. And he's really angry mm. and hurt um, because even he recognizes that he's been, um, that he can't live up to those standards, you know? Yeah. And and to go back to the beginning, um, I think that's why, you know, it's so beautiful that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like, let go of being the biggest point score in NBA history because that's just that's an impossible that's that's Probably an impossible thing to live up to a little, a little bit oh what a I relief. Just, yeah yeah you know it's like he wasn't yeah. even holding it it's like it was like somewhere in the back of his like basement do you know what I mean yeah. in a box and he was like like they showed up and they're like hey like there's a new guy in town he's like oh I think that box oh, is thank- in the back I'll open up the garage you know like it was <laughs> yeah. just like not but oh thank god yeah oh thank god like you know we'll we'll well, Tom Brady, how will he feel when he's no longer considered the greatest of all time? Will that be, will that hurt him or will that be a burden he can put down? Just be like, I oh, thank God. I, I, don't think, I know it will, oh. but like it, it, he needs to get over it, man, and get a life. Well, well talk to, <laughs> talk to, 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 you know, uh, Michael Phelps. It, um, it's, it, yeah. it, it, it well, creates yeah, uh, he's been, lots of yes. uh, internal strife, shall we say. Yeah. Talk about that's right, an imposter syndrome. He had to go uh, do do you know engage in some bad behavior to kind yeah. of clear his palate and show people that he wasn't America's golden boy because that's too much to carry, man. Well, let's that's get too back. Much. Let's get let's finish on a note of sort of grace for those who do not live up to either the standard of behavior set by their parents or as a parent themselves. Since this speaks to us, uh, there was a very powerful personal essay put up on Mockingbird last week by Cole Huffman called XL Grace. And it begins like this. He says, my oldest son, 26, is caught in drug and alcohol addiction, spanning seven years now. In the deep furrows of my heart, seedbed hopes for my children were planted before their births. It feels as though the locusts swarmed this son's row. On the inside of his left arm, he has a tattoo in bold black ink, XL, not for extra large, but the Roman numeral 40, specifically Psalm 40. A once aspiring musician, he liked how U2 put Psalm 40 to music on their war album, and that his dad, a Bono admirer, made that his go-to prayer for him. A friend once gave me an apt child-rearing analogy. He said, parenting is like driving a vehicle. During the growing up years, the parents are in the front seats. We move to the back seats when the child is old enough to navigate life on his own. But if he goes off-road at full speed, bouncing his parents around violently, something will have to change. I didn't leap for my son's life as he sped toward cliff after cliff, wheels on fire. We have a good relationship, all things considered, but it's hard to relate to someone with an appetite for his own destruction. 
There's a lot I don't understand about addiction, whether it's more disease, disorder, volition, or victimization. I'll leave it for the experts to debate. I do think about it in, ter- in Psalm 40 terms. He quotes the psalm, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. A pit was something an enemy threw you into. A bog is something you fall into yourself. That's addiction. Pit and bog both. Addiction has imprisoned my son. Addiction could drown him. If addiction has made my son self-destructive, it's made me self-doubtful. At first, it was the self-doubt of wondering what I did or didn't do that sent him to the demons. I had to get out from under that burden of false blame. Though it sounds odd to put it like this, I occupy a more positive self-doubt now. Freed from giving easy answers, from doling out fixes or formulas to those living in the same kind of protracted distress. They once asked the 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody if he was filled with the Spirit. Yes, he said, but I leak. My hope in relation to my son leaks. At times I need others to hope for me, sort of like when marathoners hit the wall and go jelly-legged and need holding up. Keeping hope doesn't mean expecting our situation will have a happy ending. It means bearing in mind that God is resolved in his son to take thought for me, as Psalm 40 puts it in, my, in conclusion. That has to be enough. As Anne Lamott writes of it in her book, Help, Thanks, Wow, if I were to begin practicing the presence of God for the first time today, it would help to begin by admitting the three most terrible truths of our existence, that we are so ruined and so loved and in charge of so little. So ruined, so loved, in charge of so little. That's not just my son, a wilderness unto himself. It's me too. How long to sing this song? I just thought this was like one of the best things we've had on the website ever. So powerful. It feels like a piece you can go back to again and again. Um, You know, a piece about parenting, a piece about failure, and a piece about addiction. And It's it's interesting we're talking about it today because I was listening to the radio this morning and there was a gentleman being interviewed about um, the fentanyl crisis in New Hampshire and he lost his daughter in 2016 to it and you know he was talking about just how um, relentless it was how like back in 2016 you couldn't get health insurance to cover rehab and then she sort of you know, foisted herself into, into the Marines. And, and that was great for her. She had a whole new group of friends. Um, but then she tested positive for marijuana, which he's like, of course is legal everywhere now, but tested positive for marijuana and then was ousted from the military and then was dead in months. Mm. Um, and the thing that was so powerful to me about that was he said, uh, to other parents who are struggling with this, he said, you, you really need to reach out to your friends. He said, so often when, when we're going through this as parents, you know, with adult children struggling with addiction, we become more and more like private. And I mean, I think imposter syndrome imposter whatever we're going to call it is interesting in that there there is some truth to it right and i wonder about like how how much we all kind of have this like imposter thing with our our pain and our suffering like and how rare it is for us to actually share it while we're in it like there's this is not a victory story no there's no you know this is not and it's not even a tragedy yet Mm. like he's writing in the middle of the war to us. It's a letter from the war. 
and mm. it's so powerful and so filled with graciousness and you know, if you're a preacher, I, I cannot commend this to you enough because it, it feels to me like like the Stephen Ting thing we have on the website from like four million years ago <laughs> yeah. um, about what the gospel is. Like, it feels like that thing I would go back to just when I was trying to write a sermon about anything. Like, it's it's just so heartfelt. So thank you to Cole for writing this. Yeah, what a thing. I wonder if his sons read it. <laughs> yeah, um, I wonder the same thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I also recognize he needed he needed to write it and and what a mm-hmm. um, I will say again when you risk that yeah and he, here he is risking something that is yeah because I mean a lot of parents are like well do you want to know the exact path of addiction the kid took so that you can theoretically prevent it with your own child as though it's all basically their fault <laughs> or, totally and i i how did they die it's our favorite question when people die. how did they die yeah. with the subtext being we don't want to die like i know, that, you I, know? I heard myself doing like, yeah. that this morning a friend of mine said he's who's he his wife was raising some money for the for, through the super bowl for her mm-hmm. sister that passed and i was mm-hmm. like this second i was like i don't want to know like how she doing or i, I don't want to know about what's the fundraiser i want to like Mm-mm. wait how did she die you know it's like how did she die because i need to avoid yeah, it yeah <laughs> okay i'm okay yeah. you know it's yeah but i thought to myself the 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 lightning rod of connection and hope in fact that this piece has had and that you sometimes see the, the web you know can do beautiful things like this or just writing in general, but um, through the risking of that story in the context of some reflection and it's not, he's not just confessing. He's, 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 he's couching it in some ways that I think are actually helpful to that I can learn from. But I also just mm-hmm. felt um, a, 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 over, a, an increase of, of love and uh, compassion uh, as, as I was reading it and not in self-righteousness in any, in any regard. Right. Um, I don't know, RJ. What? You, also, that Anne Lamont prayer. I mean, good Sorry, lord, RJ. we are so loved and so ruined and in charge of so little. It's just, <laughs> we need to send that to all those ladies in New York. You know what I mean? I mean, it's hmm. kind of the inverse of the, what they're living through. It yeah, is, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> crushing it. We're so right. Unloved. <laughs> right. And in charge of everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh so hard, but that's it. It's true. <laughs> Yeah. It made me think of all the wonderful widows in my church, like all the women who've lost their husbands and really could well up at any moment thinking about it, whether it happened last month or 10 years ago. Um, And yet, like, they're just the most lovely. I love them. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they're carrying that Mm -hmm. um, every day of their lives. So it's like, there's not a day that goes by that they don't think about their husband who's passed and how much they loved him. Um, and, uh, as my, one of my old bosses in ministry, Dr. John Westfall, who I love dearly, wrote a book called, um, uh, getting past what you'll never get over. And that's just true. You'll just, you know, you may sort of get through it. You may get Mm -hmm. past it, but you're never going to get over it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it felt like it's, it's written from a similar, a similar kind of place. And the, 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 not only that, the Psalms are clearly written from that kind of place, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's not just Esther in there. There's, these are, that's Holy Scripture. It kind of boggles the mind a little. It's not just, I always thought, by the way, that it was Bono had written those words because like it was, I first encountered Psalm 40 through 
war, not through the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this idea that this kid has this tattoo. Like, how beautiful that in the wreckage of his body that is filled with drugs and hopelessness that he has marked it in this way. Like, mm. what a blessing that, like, that's on his body. And I hope that we can all, I mean, I just today, just today, heard a story of a priest who said something disparaging about people with tattoos. Mm. And I hope that we can remember, especially when we see young people with tattoos, that um, there's something about that for them that is an, an incredible identifier. And we don't know the story behind it and we don't know the meaning behind it. And, you know, and it, it's, it, I just think this is the most beautiful thing and like a reassuring thing for the father that like, no matter what this young man puts his body through, like it's been marked with a prayer. I'm always, I think him. about that thing in baptism with the oil. Those you marked as Christ's own. Oh, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Yes, that, that, <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Marked as Christ's own. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I think that's a good good no place what. to end. Um, XL, uh, thank you guys. Uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Hope your February continues as swimmingly. Happy Valentine's Day. Have a good one. Yeah, you too, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise